Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Hippin' Hops in East Atlanta is the first African-American-owned brick-and-mortar brewery in Georgia. City Lights engineer and contributor Shelley Canavy recently sat down with the innovative owner, Clarence Boston, and later this hour, they'll discuss craft brewing, community vibe, and the unusual pairing of oysters with beer. First, I wanted to sing like Nat King Cole with lyrics like Louis Jordan, the swing of Benny Goodman, and the soul of Muddy Waters. Those words belong to the rock and roll legend Chuck Berry. His life and music are explored on the next episode of the PBS series In Their Own Words. Chuck DeLacklis is the series' executive producer. He joins us now via Zoom with Bruce Pegg, the author of Brown-Eyed Handsome Man, The Life and Hard Times of Chuck. Welcome to City Lights. Well, thanks for having us, Lois. Thank you, Lois. Good to be here. In the film, Chuck Berry is described as the man who made rock and roll, ground zero for rock and roll. What made his style and music revolutionary? Well, in my opinion, uh, what he did was forge two different kinds of music together. He was obviously a big fan of R&B. He talks about having played uh, Jay McShann's Confessing the Blues in a, a concert at Sumner High School when he was a teenager in St. Louis. He forged that uh, with what was then called hillbilly, we would now call country and western music, and brought them together in one package. And by the time he gets to 1955 and Maybelline, uh, his first major hit single, we have this new form, new art form, which was christened rock and roll by the DJ Alan Freed. Who is not a good guy. Well, <laughs> he certainly was uh, not averse to uh, receiving uh, under-the-table payments for uh, playing people's music. So uh, I, if that makes him not a good guy, then yes, I guess you're right. <laughs> 
And that comes out in the documentary. This fusion of blues with country music, which was then called hillbilly music and became rockabilly, was extraordinary. And in the documentary, I thought about Ray Charles and his respect for country music, which gave me some pause, and I realized when I read that what he liked about country music was the storytelling. With Chuck Berry, it was more of the strumming, the shredding, that plucky sound, wasn't it? You know, he built a lot of his guitar, his rhythm work on uh, what his piano player Johnny Johnson was doing. Johnny was a probably one of the, the greatest boogie-woogie piano players of his generation. And uh, Johnny taught Chuck how to play this incessant rhythmic sound, which Chuck successfully adapted for guitar. And, uh, you know, you for forged that with the storytelling of country music. But also, you mentioned at the beginning of the show, Louis Jordan. Louis Jordan was a huge influence on Chuck's lyric writing. Louis would tell great, great long stories. Uh, I think I'm thinking of songs like Caledonia and uh, Saturday Night Fish Fry, where, uh, you know, Chuck just realized that if you could crystallize that, if you could distill it into a three-minute pop song, you would really have something that everybody uh, could appreciate and, and buy. And he had this foundation for lyrics because his mother was a teacher. She loved poetry, and he heard poetry recited in the home, and he had quite a knack for it himself. Absolutely. Chuck's mother was so enamored with poetry that she actually named her youngest son Paul Lawrence Dunbar Berry oh after, the, uh, after the famous African-American poet. And so, yeah, I mean, Chuck just grew up in this really literary rich uh, and music rich house. His uh, sister Lucy was a classically trained mezzo-soprano. His father and his mother played in the Antioch Baptist Church choir. So, you know, he, he just grew up with this as a part of his DNA. Hmm. His style on stage, someone in the film mentions it as seismic. <laughs> I mean, just an electrifying presence. Guitar between his legs and the duck walk, all of this amazing choreography. Maybelline was his first hit song in 1956. And Johnny B. Good followed soon after. Would you talk a bit about what made those songs extraordinary? Well, as we've, as we've just said, the storylines, but in particular with Maybelline, you think uh, Chuck, at the, at the time Maybelline was recorded, was, I believe, 29 or close to 30 years old. But he had this amazing ability to tap into the uh, teenage sensibility. You think, you know, of, of 19, mid-1950s America and how uh, the teenage population after the Second World War had just exploded. And he was able to talk to them about the things 
that interested them the most cars school and uh, of course rock and roll music and and young love of course as well so you know maybelline was able to synthesize a lot of that stuff into this very quick two and a half minute burst of of sound and you know johnny be good's a little bit different uh by the time he writes that in 1958 you know, he's able to sort of really become a little bit deeper in his lyric. And that's a great story. It's a thinly veiled autobiography of his own life and career has gone on to become probably one of one of the seminal songs in rock and roll music. You know, Lewis, you talk about Chuck's stage presence, his seismic stage presence. One of the themes that we really came across in the making of the film was that the impact that that performing style and that musical style had on future rock and rollers was just as seismic. And in the film, we talked to Steve Jordan. We talked to Robert Cray. We talked to Keith Richards. We talked to Slash. We talked to Darius Rucker. And you start to realize along the way the amount or the level of talent that Chuck Berry inspired. And the other element that came across to us in the making of the film was that Chuck was a poetic, quiet, thoughtful speaker. When Chuck, when, when Chuck was interviewed, when people spoke to him, he had a very quiet demeanor. He was not the most chatty guy. And something happened when Chuck Berry got out on stage. Mm. And when he would step out on stage, all the self-doubt that Chuck felt as a human being, all the difficulties that he went through in his life, the, um, they all went away. And Chuck Berry channeled something on stage that even his, his wife, the Meta, who spoke to us extensively, literally saw him on stage and put her, mm-hmm. her hand over her eyes and said, I, I didn't know you could do that. Mm-hmm. That's a wonderful moment in the film where she was struck by the boldness of his moves, but clearly she was proud of it. Absolutely she was. But it was, I do think, performance, writing, music was a channel for Chuck Berry to be something that otherwise maybe he didn't have the interpersonal skills to have. Mm. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with Chuck DeLacklis, executive producer of the PBS series In Their Own Words, and Bruce Pegg, the author of Brown-Eyed Handsome Man, The Life and Hard Times of Chuck Berry. Bruce, a moment ago you mentioned his enormous appeal to teenagers. He also bridged the gap between black and white teenagers. His concerts appeared to be fully integrated during the height of segregation. What was it about his music that appealed to white audiences? 
Well, I think it was a number of things. Clearly, he knew how to speak to that teenage population, as I said earlier. And I think, too, just the insistence of the beat. You know, remember, this is a time, too, when uh, AM radio is going out, uh, projecting these huge signals all across uh, great swaths of this country. And when, you know, before Chuck came on the scene, a lot of blues music, a lot of R&B was strictly just listened to by, uh, by black audiences. And now, all of a sudden, white DJs picked it up and white audiences could not ignore it. So, I mean, I think he just had that ability to be able to speak to a, a generation and across races to, uh, to just tap into those primal human emotions of love and teenage exuberance. Long before the moonwalk, there was the duck walk, Chuck Berry's signature dance. Do we know how he came up with that dance move? Was that just something that happened on stage? There's a couple of a uh, couple of great stories about that. First, Chuck says that when he was a very small boy, he uh, had lost a ball that he was playing with in the family's dining room or living room, and had chased it underneath the table. Um, and for some reason, had decided that he was going to squat down rather than bend down to get under the table. And his mother was just astounded and told him to repeat that. And that's, uh, that was one of his stories. Another story is that they were uh, in, on their first, very first tour of, uh, of America in 1955 after Maybelline had just been released. He uh, had ordered stage suits for his band and they had come back from the place that they had ordered them from and they were made of very inferior material that just wrinkled. And so he uh, decided as he was out front uh, and everybody was watching him that he would squat down to hide the wrinkles around his knees. But I think a lot of what he got was taken from uh, T-Bone Walker, who was one of his idols, a great uh, uh, blues guitar player in his own right. And T-Bone was well known for his stage antics. Whether he did the Doc Walker or not, I do not know. But <laughs> he certainly was, was very capable of uh, doing things like playing the guitar behind his head and that kind of thing. So I'm sure Chuck was very much inspired to put on a great show. And that he did. <laughs> We've been talking about his hit record, something you do not shy away from in this documentary is the unattractive side of the recording industry at the time. How artists such as Chuck Berry were cheated. Even Chess, who speaks a few times in the course of the film, was shocked at the way his father handled payments to his artists. Would you talk about that? I think one of the things that Marshall Chess said that really affected me was it was a primitive time in the music industry. And I do think it was a primitive time. And, I, and Slash goes on to say that commerce and artistry doesn't always mix. Artists really want to get up and play their music. Now, Chuck Berry learned very quickly that there was more to music than playing new music. He had gotten messed over quite a few times, both in his, his ownership of the music and as well as being on tour. And after he had gotten struck down a couple of times, he said, I'm just simply not going to take it anymore. And Chuck Berry became as much as a, of a businessman as he did an artist. But look what it took to make him do that. Um, you bring out the pay-for-play, the 
notorious Alan Freed on the radio, and it's pointed out that pay-for-play was legal. You could pay a DJ to have your recording played on there, and that's how recordings were sold. But then, I mean, here Chuck Berry wrote his own music and lyrics, but Alan Freed was listed as one of the writers? That's right. On, on Chuck's first, uh, first single, Maybelline, Alan Freed and another gentleman named Russ Frado were credited for the song. Russ, we believe, was some uh, business associate of the Chess Brothers. What people, I think, didn't understand at the time is that publishing is really where the money is and, and still is today in, in the music business. And people at that, that in that era didn't think that rock and roll was going to last beyond about, you know, a, a couple of years. Uh, and nobody thought that uh, Johnny B. Good would still be selling <laughs> and being used in commercials and, uh, and movies uh, at this point in time. So artists didn't t tend to spend a lot of uh, energy worrying about the publishing rights. You know, that's why uh, the Chess Brothers uh, gave some of the publishing to, to Alan Freed and, and Ross Ratto to, to encourage them to, uh, to promote the song and as a favor. But, you know, once Chuck realized that the sales from the actual recordings weren't going to get him the money, but the publishing was, he very quickly took charge of his own publishing and was one of the first, at least from the rock and roll era, as far as I know, to take charge of his own publishing in 1958 and make sure that that particular revenue stream was going into his pocket, and not somebody else's. For the film we also spoke, we sat down with uh, an early chess artist, Sugar Pie DeSantis. Yes. And... For some artists like Chuck Berry, Chuck Berry was, I'm not suggesting Sugar Pie was not brilliant, but she was musically brilliant, but she wasn't a business person. And we flew to Oakland and Sugar Pie is a, is a lovely woman who, who never really capitalized on her talents. And she was a chess, arti chess artist. And she said in the, in the film, she said to us when, when, when I sat down with her, she said, we just wanted to play. We just wanted to make music. We wanted to do what we loved because nobody had realized at that point, nobody realized how much money there was in the game, how much skin there was in the game. The Chess Brothers knew it and they would pay their artists what they felt the artists needed and the artists took it because the artists didn't quite know what was going on in the back room. Or did they pay what they thought they could get away with? I mean, yes. Chuck Berry yes. was being booked by the Chess Brothers for $3,000 a week, and he was paid 500 Yes, well, that actually was not the Chess Brothers. That was actually promoters. Oh, that was a okay. separate, but but the point is, yes, they all, whether it was promoters, whether it was the Chess Brothers, whether it was Alan Freed who was promoting him, across the board, across the board, business people were, um, were paying the artists as much as they thought they could get away with paying the artists. And Sugar Pie but said that. She said, I need to go shopping. And he said, how much do you need? I need this to go shopping. Here you go. Yeah. I need to pay my rent. How much do you need? Here you go. Hmm. Chuck DeLacklis, executive producer of the PBS series In Their Own Words, and author Bruce Pegg. The two collaborated on the latest episode of this series, which explores the life and music of Chuck Berry. 
We'll return to more of our conversation in just a moment. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my conversation with Bruce Pegg, the author of Brown-Eyed Handsome Man, The Life and Hard Times of Chuck Berry, and Chuck Delaclis, executive producer of the PBS series In Their Own Words, The newest episode airs Saturday evening on our TV station, ATL-PBA, and explores the life and career of Chuck Berry. Here, I asked Delaclis about his choice to include Berry's run-ins with the law. I think that if you're going to tell someone's full story, if you're going to truly give a portrait of people's motivations and what causes them to behave the way they do, you have to look at the good, the bad, and the ugly. And Chuck Berry had all of the above, uh, self-admittedly had all of the above. You don't really, you wouldn't be able to tell the full Chuck Berry story if you didn't understand that Chuck Berry spent many of his formative years in a prison. You wouldn't be able to tell the Chuck Berry story if you didn't tell the story about him transporting somebody underage uh, across state lines. If you think about the fact that when Chuck Berry was in prison, you had to tell the story that he went to prison because when he was in prison was when the um, Beatles and the Rolling Stones blew up in America. And he came out of prison and suddenly he's like, wait a minute, what's going on in in the music world? I want to be in that world. So how do you... How do you tell Chuck's full story without giving all the elements? Because they all play into who Chuck was and what inspired him as an artist and as a human being. When he was finally released from prison in 1963, what was the impact of that time on his worldview as well as his music? Well, one of the things that stri- strikes me about that whole particular episode in his life is how qu- how resilient he was. He comes out of prison, and within several weeks, he's playing his first show in Detroit. He is recording some of the best music of his career, including Nadine, No Particular Place to Go, Promised Land. And it's almost like it never happened. I'm sure it did. Psychologically, it must have, as Chuck alluded to earlier. But he was just one of those characters that just kind of forged ahead and said, you know what, 
I'm not going to dwell on the past. I'm not going to be bitter. I'm not going to be vindictive. I'm just going to go ahead, forge ahead and, and, and be my own person and do things my way. But in the film, Keith Richards talked about something that seemed different in Chuck Berry's onstage persona. He wrote My Dingling. He changed keys. There was more anger that came through. Is that fair? Yeah, Carl Perkins, the great rockabilly musician, met Chuck on a, a tour in 1964, not long after that had happened. And came. he said the famous quote, never saw a man so changed. And so I think outwardly, yes, I think that's very true. Uh, I think he had been developing that difficult persona before going into jail. And I think jail just kind of hardened it and made it more uh, more prominent. And so, you know, that's where all of these stories that, uh, that Keith and, and Keith Richards and many other people tell about Chuck, about how difficult he was to work with. But I don't think he was. I think Butch Barry, Chuck's son, says in the, something to the effect that, uh, you know, if you, if you did everything Chuck's way, if you abided by the contract that you had signed with him to play your show, uh, if you had supplied the amplifier that he wanted and the car that he wanted to rent at the airport, and you paid him the, the exact amount of money in exactly the way he wanted it, which was usually cash, then he would be just fine and he would be the easiest person in the world to get along with. But you cross him on any one of those little details and forget it. He would just be the most difficult person imaginable. Hmm. And, and Keith Richards talked a lot about actually every artist who we spoke to who knew him, everybody we, we spoke to who knew him. Chuck was seeking something, and by most accounts, Chuck was seeking acceptance and respect. And Chuck Berry, the people who worked closest with him, they came out of their experiences with him believing that all Chuck ever wanted was respect, and the things he asked for were not just because he was difficult, but because he wanted to prove his worth to himself. Mm. We mentioned these luminaries in the film, Steve Miller, Robert Cray, Keith Richards is most prominent. The documentary brings out the enormous impact of Chuck Berry's music on the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. A lot of attention to the British invasion. I was surprised at the absence of any reference to Elvis Presley. Chuck Berry's considered the king of rock and roll, but Elvis got that title. Berry was a huge inspiration for Elvis, and I think Presley's success and recognition must have been an open wound for Chuck Berry throughout most of his life. Why did you omit Elvis from this story? Uh, I don't think we omitted Elvis. I think we had to make choices of what in 55 minutes, in 55 minutes, how do we tell Chuck Berry's life story? If we had opened the Elvis can of worms, then it goes into a whole different realm of storytelling that we just simply did not have the screen time for his you know elvis and chuck's paths crossed many times and in many different ways but once you start talking about elvis 
unfortunately, Elvis was such an extraordinary and extreme presence, things start to become very much about Elvis. And this story was Chuck's story. And did their paths, did, was, were there intersections? A lot of them. But you start going down that rabbit hole, then you start saying, okay, what else needs to go? And with a limited amount of time to tell the story, you have to make some creative choices. And we did. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with Chuck DeLacklis, executive producer of the PBS series In Their Own Words, and Bruce Pegg, the author of Brown-Eyed Handsome Man. The Life and Hard Times of Chuck Berry. Would you talk about Berry Park and what that reveals about Chuck Berry? Oh, I'm going to let Bruce talk about how Berry Park came about, and then I'll tell you a little anecdotal story in shooting the, the film of what I experienced there. Please. Sure. So uh, towards the end of the 50s, as Chuck was starting to really uh, become quite wealthy from his music, he decided that he was going to uh, start a, a, I guess you call it a country club out in uh, the middle of uh, nowhere, effectively. It's uh, uh, just outside of Wentzville, Missouri, which is a small agricultural town, probably about 30 miles outside of St. Louis. And uh, the interesting thing from my research is that this was not the first country club on this in this particular area. There were two others on the same road that had been a mainstay of uh, African-American culture in, in the 30s and 40s. And they were places for African-American families during the summer to get away, get out of the heat of the city and come on out and enjoy a relaxed barbecue and swim and do those kinds of things. And so Chuck, I think, wanted to replicate that. So he came up with Berry Park and little by little he added to it. There was a swimming pool, a bar, a nightclub. And that was thriving fairly well during the 1960s until the early 70s when Chuck, uh, I think, made not an error, but uh, really kind of surrendered so, uh, some of his notorious control to other people who uh, really weren't um, acting in his best interest. And they put on uh, several shows, their big shows with uh, with name acts, like I think REO Speedwagon, people like that. The whole place had, uh, was run without very with minimal security and eventually uh, there were lots of fights and uh, a lot of problems and Chuck uh, shut the operation down and sadly uh, since the early 70s it's become very neglected and so the 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 family still owns Barry Park and in I had made multiple trips to St. Louis to to spend time with the family to conduct interviews to spend time with you know, so many St. Louis luminaries and really interviewed them for this, including uh, Bernie Hayes, who was incredible, and Steve Littman, Billy Peak, and Joe Edwards. And on my final visit, I, 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 I said to um, my team, I said, you know, I think we need to go to Berry Park. So we, we asked for permission and received it to go to Berry Park. And we drove into Berry Park and first of all, it's a, it's an absolutely incredible place. There are man-made three stunning man-made lakes, gorgeous, just trees everywhere, um, beautiful areas, uh, 
but the the actual structures have have become very run down next to the structures is chuck's actual original winnebago he used to tour in and we went and we looked Mm. and then we saw a couple of garages and i said you know let's go look so we opened the doors to one garage and in that garage were literally bar stools and broken down furniture and 1970s televisions and satellite dishes all loaded with dust it was like a time capsule and um gary pearson who works with the barry estate he said you know somewhere in here there used to somewhere in this world there used to be one of chuck's cadillacs and i said do you feel like going on a treasure hunt he said let's see i haven't been here for many for a long time so we drove around and we saw a dilapidated garage and i said come on let's go look and he's like all right so we went in we opened the door and it was like a dust storm it was like cobwebs and dust and sitting in front of us was a tarp a giant tarp and i pulled the tarp back and it was one of chuck's red 1980 cadillacs (laughs) wow popped with dust beaten down absolutely stunning uh cassette in the tape player literally a a moment in time. And then I turned around and I saw these dressers, these, these, these armoires. And I opened the doors and there must've been 300 of Chuck Berry's classic outfits. The shirt that he wore on the tonight show, the outfits he wore in some of his most famous record uh, uh, television appearances, all sitting there. And I started looking through them. Above them were all of Chuck's notes and most importantly, every single contract that Chuck Berry had ever had. All labeled, all itemized, all stacked. And we had walked into what was literally a Chuck Berry time capsule. And my jaw dropped. What we learned from that time capsule was incredible. And I spent probably two hours in there. We shot in there. We got some incredible footage. And the the one thing that stood out to me was how small all the outfits were, Hmm. how, how tiny they were. And Chuck was a tall, lanky guy. Um, based on those outfits, pretty small in stature or, or, or in physicality. But then you compare that to the Chuck Berry on stage. He was like 10 feet tall. Indeed. Now, in the film, there is mention of a museum. It sounds like what you're describing could be a museum. So Themeta really, really wants to figure out how to create a Chuck Berry museum. Uh, I don't think she's there yet. Remember, you know, Chuck has not been gone that long. And I think the family is still, still misses him. He was, he was quite a presence in the family. It was four years ago he died, right? Yeah, four years ago. And that's not a long time to mourn the loss of somebody who was that, that pivotal and instrumental in the family. Um, I think as time goes on, I think the plan is slowly formulating. Uh, It was not overly shared with me. But I think the hope and the dream of the family is to put together a museum where 
fans, um, people from St. Louis, people from all over the world can really, really dive into all things Chuck Berry. And just my short visit, that one moment at Berry Park, <laughs> I spent three hours in that one room, in that one garage. I can't imagine whatever else is in there. And so I think it would be a really amazing place to go. Well, on the topic of museums, if there is poetic justice, the fact that Chuck Berry was the first musician inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is glorious. Do you agree? Absolutely. I mean, you know, we've alluded all the way through here to, you know, how huge an influence uh, Chuck had uh, on musicians following him. I mean, it's inconceivable for somebody to play rock and roll without at least learning how to play it the way that Chuck Berry played it. It's inconceivable for somebody uh, to write a rock and roll song without at least understanding how Chuck Berry put those lyrics together, those beautiful, rhythmic uh, lyrics that paint such great, uh, vivid pictures. So, yeah, I mean, I I tell the story um, that's very well known that, um, you know, in 1977, when the Voyager spacecraft left Earth to go to planets and beings unknown. Uh, on board that spacecraft was a golden record that featured what Carl Sagan and, and his team regarded as the best of, uh, or, or the most representative uh, things from uh, from Earth. Uh, greetings and uh, photographs and music. And one of the pieces of music on, that, on board that spacecraft was Johnny B. Good. So, I mean, I, ca- I can't think of a higher testimony to... Uh, to any musician that uh, somebody believes that that's one of the pinnacles of human culture. And his induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was Keith Richards. Keith actually inducted him into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Keith Richards comes across as so endearing in this documentary. (laughs) Is he really that humble? I was stunned. I have, you know, in my in my years of, of filmmaking, I have I've encountered many, many, many superstars. I can honestly say that Keith Richards, if not in the top five, was the single the single most generous, kind, endearing, self-deprecating, and honest superstar I've ever interviewed. That comes through Uh, resoundingly. And the joy, the the amazement he felt pinching himself that he could actually perform with Chuck Berry. I must thank you. Bruce Pegg, author of Brown-Eyed Handsome Man, The Life and Hard Times of Chuck Berry, and Chuck lackless executive producer of the PBS biography documentary series in their own words. Lois, thank you very, very much. Yeah, thank you, Lois. It's been a pleasure. The new episode of the PBS series in their own words, Chuck Berry, will air this Saturday at 7 p.m. on our TV station, ATL-PBA, And again, Sunday evening at 8. You can learn more on our website, 
wabe.org slash city lights. Coming up, oysters and craft beer with Georgia's first African-American-owned brewery, Hops. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. East Atlanta's Hops is the first African-American-owned brick-and-mortar brewery in Georgia. City Lights engineer and contributor Shelley Canavy recently sat down with the owner, Clarence Boston, and has this story. Oysters and craft beer. Sounds like a winning, if unorthodox, combination, if you ask me. And that's what Clarence Boston thought when he came up with the concept for his new restaurant, Hip and Hops. The mortician turned brewmaster and his wife opened Hip and Hops earlier this year in the former Eastlake Pharmacy space in East Atlanta Village. I recently sat down with him there to talk about his new business and about his former work. I, I own um, four funeral homes, and the fifth one was going to be uh, Stone Mound, which we actually turned that into a uh, production brewery now. Oh, wow, cool. Yeah, so we said we're kind of like tired of dead people, and it's, you know, we really enjoy making beer and <laughs> socializing and all that good stuff. Yeah, I was going to say, did the uh, skills transfer? <laughs> uh, we just got burnt yeah, out. Like, yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> you know, what's the worst thing happened if, you know, somebody doesn't want their beer? Hey, you give them another one. Now you're just making everybody happy with your beers and oysters. So how did you come up with that concept of pairing beer and oysters? Well, we own a uh, oyster lease out of Stump Sound that we lease out to a, another oyster farmer. That was our retirement plan. We were just going to open this big old oyster farm and just, you know, farm oysters. And it was that. And then I, I wanted to open a winery, so I said, "Well, I turned 45. Was going to." buy the land and then plant my grapes and then turn 50 we'd be ready to rock and roll but uh you know we own a couple other restaurants so it's just like we really enjoy that business and you know the quality of life is very important to us at this point in life because mm-hmm. hey you know we're in our 40s and you know this is our last good years where we can really get around good and travel and you know we wanted to do something we really enjoy doing so that's that's pretty much where the concept came from. Yeah, and your wife does the cooking, right? Yeah, yeah, she yeah, she is. Uh, her, and then we have another chef, Snow. She's from New Orleans as well. Well, my wife's from Baton Rouge, and uh, I'm from Baton Rouge. Are you really? I am. Did you really? <laughs> I saw the menu, it's very Southern. I mean, we are still in the South, but right, you know, right, right. South Louisiana is a whole different thing. Well, there's not a seafood restaurant really around here. Uh, and, you know, I really enjoy oysters and, you know, my, my kids do. I know it's not about what I enjoy, but, I've, I, you know, <laughs> that just... It makes it more fun. <laughs> right, yeah, but it's not a lot of places that, you know, to go for good oysters around here. And, yeah. Uh, so we just decided to make it happen. I asked Clarence what it's been like being in business with his wife all these years. Generally, me and my wife, we, we don't work together that great. So it's like uh, we try to just stay out of each other's space. Like she don't come back here, and I don't really go back there unless they, they're really bad. Yeah. But she's uh, doing a great job 
you know, the recipes that, you know, they, they're coming up. They just did a new one called The Boss, which is a, uh, it's, it's a oyster, it's a three cheese oyster, and then it's topped with a Cajun shrimp. And they have been selling, like, cause I'm, I'm like, you know, I, I've always ran the restaurants and she's always ran the funeral homes. And I'm like, no, menu control, we don't need nothing else on this menu. It's gonna make the food take longer to get out here, don't. So I went out of town. Uh, <laughs> well, I went to LA last week and uh, to look at some brewery equipment. And then I came back and everybody's, oh, we got this new, your wife created this new, I'm like, what did she create? No way, no way, but we have been selling them like, and then I was scared like, cause you know, I, I was like, gosh, I hope she doesn't charge the same price that we charge them, you know, and she, she did it right. I was, I was really oh, tickled, I was tickled to death actually. <laughs> Clarence and his wife recently moved back to the neighborhood, and we talked about what it's like being back in East Atlanta Village after all these years. I used to get my haircut in this building, um, right. Know, right where the TV is. But I, you know, we, we left to open up funeral homes, and then we sold our biggest one and decided to move back and just do some, some things we really enjoy. So. So why was it important for you to have, uh, to open up like in your own neighborhood and East Atlanta Village and? Well, I've I, I worked in this neighborhood for several years at uh, Meadows Mortuary, which is oh, okay, yeah. funeral home right around the corner. And they, uh, so I used to walk up and down these streets every day, go to Flatiron and get something to eat and cold beer over there. And uh, so we were just, we were just looking all over, but when we seen this building, I'm like, you know, it had sen sentimental value to yeah. me. So I said, hey, Let's give it a shot, and that's what we did, and we got it like immediately. Yeah, know, yeah. Well, it's beautiful. You guys have done a great job. Oh God, yeah. It's really it, it came a long way. <laughs> <laughs> it came a long way. God knows it did. Then we talked about his beer. We have different uh, styles of beer. You know, like we have a buckwheat, which is actually made with buckwheat. And, uh huh. Uh, our baby mama drama, which is a uh, IPA made with citrus, mosaic hops. We got a liar liar, which is our oyster style. Uh, our barely legal, which is a 12% uh, hazy IPA. And then, you know, we got Saison and then a couple other sours. So we just wanted to make sure we, we don't have like 15, 20 beers because that, we think that's just too many beers to have, especially with the size of this building. Maybe yeah. in Stone Mountain, we probably have a lot more beers, but just wanted to make focus on quality, yeah, and uh, versus quality. And everything's brewed here. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, that's oh, awesome. Yeah. Right, right there. Hey guys, how's everybody doing? <laughs> then he opened the doors and took me on a tour. This is our brew house uh, here. Oh wow! So uh, it's very small, three barrel unit. It's conducive of our needs uh, here because we don't have much room to put anything. But it does a job, it's totally automated system and it, it, it runs, she, she makes good beer. <laughs> Here we're making a pineapple habanero hazy IPA and then here we're doing a pineapple baby mama and then this is our sour tank and then the tank beside that we're doing a, a saison. So it's, 
and not yeah. everything, but that. You have the, new new things all the time. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah we're trying to switch it out. We keep the baby mama, but yeah. everything else we kind of like, you know, yeah. keep moving it in and out, make some creative things, you know. Yeah. Pineapple habanero sounds delicious. Oh, it's gonna be great. It'll be ready Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> According to the Georgia Craft Brewers Guild, mm -hmm. this is the first black-owned brick-and-mortar brewery. It's technically the first-owned black-owned brewery, period. Yeah, uh, because it, yeah. you know breweries can't be people. You know. Well, that's true. So, that's so true. So it's, 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 it's the first African-American-owned brewery in the whole state. In the whole state. That. Well, what is what does that mean to you? What is that? What do you think well, I mean, that wasn't the reason we did it. We didn't even know about that. You know, I, we just wanted to open a brewery and an oyster bar. And, uh, but when uh, we found out, I mean, of course, it, it was it was very powerful to us uh, because you now you're getting that kind of recognition for creating history, you mm -hmm. know, and especially here in Atlanta, like, you know, how did not any African-American-owned breweries when, you know, <laughs> Nothing but African Americans, <laughs> for the right. most part, you know. But you know, so we're glad to have that title, though, and we'll wear it very well. And um, that was another key to us expanding more and more. So we want to take this brand to the next level. We don't want to just focus on um, just being this small oyster bar. Uh, we want to be big, where you know, we in Publix, Kroger's liquor stores you know all a lot of the restaurants not just in georgia but like you know in the united states and we think we can make that happen because our, our business is so unique not only just it's a good it's great beer you know but it's not many one percent of all the breweries in the country are owned by african-americans so i don't even think it's one percent you know yeah. I, I think it's like only like 13 of us wow. that actually own facilities that we we brew beer on, on premise so that makes our business really unique, you know, just because we're the manufacturers of our own product and they're not, you know, you don't go to stores or liquor stores to see beer that's made by African-Americans, which is sad, but I think it's very important for us to encourage, to help encourage people more about craft beer, you know, not just black, but, you know, all the way around. And that's Hip and Hops, East Atlanta's first and only Oyster Bar and Craft Brewery. That was City Lights engineer and contributor Shelley Canavy speaking with Hip and Hops owner Clarence Boston. You can learn more about the East Atlanta Oyster Bar and Brewery on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Finally, today, as of last week, July 22nd, will be known as Kanye West Day in Atlanta. The city of Atlanta honored the rap mogul by awarding him with a plaque of that declaration. The recognition comes on the heels of his appearance at Mercedes-Benz Stadium last Thursday night in front of 42,000 fans, West previewed his long-awaited album, Donda, and he did it in style, of course, dressed in a red puff jacket and flaming red pants with a sheer face mask, essentially patty hose over his head. 
The singer slowly walked on stage into the middle of the arena, chanting the words, We're gonna be okay. We're gonna be okay. The title of the album is a nod to his mother, Donda West, who was a professor at Clark Atlanta University. She passed away in 2007. The full album was released over the weekend. You've been listening to City Lights, our exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9, tomorrow at 11 a.m., Trillith Film Studio, formerly Pinewood, and UGA are teaming up. We hear about the launch of our state's first MFA degree in film, television, and digital media. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drove. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would just absolutely love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Archived interviews and shows are on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.